everyone, and welcome to the Neurodiverse Teacher Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kristen Eccleston, aka the Neurodiverse Teacher, and today's guest needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyways. You all probably know Wes Bergman best from his time as part of MTV's Real World Austin cast, or maybe from the multitude of times he has been on MTV's The Challenge and Dominated. But what you may not know about Wes is that he has a lot of brains to back up his brawn. Wes holds a business degree in honors from Arizona State University and owns the company Betablocks, which he co-founded in 2012. Betablocks helps accelerate startup companies that are in development by taking entrepreneurs and providing them with the educational assets and mentors they need to help grow their companies. You can even check out the first four seasons of The Blocks on The Blocks app right now. So without further ado, I want to welcome you, Wes, aka the sexiest ginger in the world, to the Neurodiverse Teacher Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. That was quite the introduction and <laughs> I'm nothing, all, all facts that you just spewed, all of them. And, and good facts at that. So mm-hmm. I'm going to jump right into things. On today's show, I want to focus on mental health, especially mental health factors that can come from being in stressful, high pressure and public positions. First question for you is this. In a world filled with youth who are constantly seeking to be TikTok famous or the next big influencer, what advice or caution would you give to someone who has found fame and recognition at a really young age? Um, Well, I mean, if they've found it and it's there, I would say exploit it, treat it like a job, do it, you know, like take it very seriously, do it very well, follow all the best practices and really, you know, and and be good with your money and good to your your mind. to the person who hasn't found it yet that wants it, I would strongly suggest finding another path. Um, there are far more lucrative things to do than become Instagram famous or any type of fame for that matter. Um, and also things that are far easier to kind of hold on to. Um, like if you go become a great engineer and you lose your job for whatever reason, you can go to another firm. If uh, you become Instagram famous and the platform has some sort of scandal and has to go away um, or a big lawsuit that takes them out or whatever reason, um, then you've ta- your one main asset is kind of gone and, um, and you can't go to that next firm really. And so I would say uh, to really not aspire to do what some of the modern youth are aspiring to do. But if it falls in your lap, I would definitely take advantage of what has fallen in your lap. So even if it fell in their lap, would you say steer away from it or would you say go for it? Oh, I'd say go for it because I mean, it's not, it's not just like the, the, the people that it hasn't fallen in their lap. It's not just that it's fleeting. It's also that there's like a 99% likelihood you're not going to be able to make it work. Like there's only there, you, there's so many things that have to go right. And so many, so much hard work and so much luck and also so much kind of skeevy things that you have to do on the back end to go from nothing to something mm-hmm. um, without the power of like, let's say being on television or whatever. And so it's just, it, it, it's a path that um, it's, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like a very good investment in yourself and to stay on topic for today. Um, it's also got to be one of the harder mental health journeys 
per dollar made that there could possibly be because all, you have to constantly care about how you look. You're constantly caring how other people feel about you. You're constantly hearing every last little comment about yourself all for, um, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, not a lot of money. Is there a way to block out some of that stuff? I mean, have you found a way to be successful in blocking out some of that? We'll call it static, you know, of, of how do you look? What are you what are you doing right now? How are people perceiving you? Is there a way to overcome that? Or is that something that just comes with time and thickening, thickening your skin, essentially? You know, um, it's really hard for anyone on the internet, let's say, to get under my skin because whatever they say, I'm kind of better than them um, in the sense of like, are they going to say that I'm not educated? Because I am. Are they going to say that I don't have a job? Because I do I have a great one. Um, are they going to say that I, I don't, you know, do this or whatever? So if all you've got is that Instagram stuff, if all you've got is that kind of that modern kind of, uh, I don't know, YouTube channel or whatever it is that you want to say, those comments would get to you because the stuff they're saying is kind of true. Like, yeah, it might be time to get a job. It might be time to take some other things in life a little bit more seriously. Um, and with me, it's kind of like um, I don't pursue those things. Um, they just are kind of in my lap and I, you know, I don't know. It's just hard to get under my skin when I'm, when I'm doing great things for other people and for professionally and personally. And, um, and so I know what's true, but I have colleagues that aren't, and they're having serious mental health issues, um, in the sense of like a lot of the comments that those people are saying are obviously crossing the line, but let's be frank. Some of them are very true. Like, um, you know, they only care about their looks. They only care about what other people think. They're very insecure with themselves. And the whole Instagram spiral is just making the problem so much worse. Um, and so I think that uh, that's, and, and so, you know, I know, I guess it's easier for me to block out the static mm -hmm. uh, than, uh, than the average person. But um, I don't know. Do you think because you're a, a public figure, people forget, though, that you're also a human being and they they forget that, you know, you have feelings and you do have, you know, things going on in your life? And do you find that people just kind of spout things without taking any of that into account? I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a known cost of the job. So it's not like you don't become famous um, like overnight and. Mm -hmm you take those steps every single day towards basically building that type of a brand. And you do so knowingly that there are pros and cons to it. And so, you know, when those cons come, you, you don't get to complain. Now, again, I have colleagues that complain about them, mm -hmm. but it's like that we did it to ourselves. Um, if you don't want to have people talk about you on the internet, don't go on television. Um, if you don't want to have people say things that might hurt your feelings, don't put yourself out there on Instagram. You know, these are mm. all optional things that you're, that, that we're doing to ourselves mm. and we need to, uh, take accountability for, um, you know, the, the pros and the cons that we've volunteered to, to take on. Well, you know, this, this question just popped in my head and you came into kind of the, the, the spotlight, I would say what? 2005, right? And so social media was not what it is today in 2005. So do you feel like there has been a big difference in how people are approaching people who are public figures or talking about people in, in public figures? Do you feel like there's more stress, more 
possibilities for having to deal with mental health issues because there's more access for people to say things than there was what I guess 20 some years ago at this point in time. Yeah, no, I definitely came in at, at an interesting time. It's like, uh, um, we still have like, like I had like before MySpace got shut down, I had like a hundred thousand MySpace followers and stuff. So it's like, I've been, I've been, I've seen it all, but it's mm-hmm. like, that was such a, um, what would you call it? Like, a. uh, um, it was a different kind of platform. It wasn't that like instant type of you had to get on your computer, training, right? wheels. training wheels is the word I'm looking for. It was training wheels compared to what they have to, to what we have today, where the, the fans have such access to get our attention so mm-hmm. easily. Whereas on MySpace, it wasn't the case. So we kind of got gradually put into it. Meanwhile, the entire time I'm growing up and maturing and becoming an actual adult. And my brain is like, like finally like coming into its own and I'm getting things, I'm building up, up a life that makes it a little bit stronger to the, and immune to those outside comments. If I had, if I had the same amount of followers as I do now on Instagram, when I was 20 years old, um, that would have got to me significantly more because of my age, mm-hmm. uh, because of, I, I wouldn't have had an other, as many things that are going on around me and for me, I would have fallen for the traps. Um, I mean, shoot, if I look back at some of the immature stuff I used to say on like Twitter and things um, like I would have it, it, these tools are so powerful that it's um, you can really do a lot of good with them, but you can also make a lot of mistakes and hurt yourself and your brand or other people's feelings. And it's just, uh, um, you know, it's a it's, it's a scary time. Like I don't have kids, but man, when they first pull out that phone for the first time and open up those apps and it is going to be a. I'm not, I'm, 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 I will have a hard time wrapping my head around them doing that. And, and kind of picking back off that, what you just said. So you have a good mindset. It sounds like when it comes to you, you've, you're married now, when you do have kids, how is it when they start to become comments that it, it's kind of attacking you, but it's really going after other people too. I mean, is that something that also weighs on you heavily? I don't know how I'm going to deal with that, but um, you know what I tell some of the newer people that are getting into this where it's like inevitably that they're going to get big into it because maybe it's like their first television show or something. Mm -hmm. I tell them like, um, you know, if you think about what percentage of the world wakes up and just has the absolute worst day of all time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody passed away or something, they just got really, really bad news. They just got fired. They just got dumped. Then you look at the percentage of people that are truly, truly, truly like far deep on the spectrum of very, very seriously sick when it comes to mental health. And if you look at that percentage, and let's just say, first off, we know that both of those two things combined is probably a fairly high percentage. Yeah. But just for the sake of argument, let's say it's just 1%. And we know darn well it's higher. But if it's 1% and you've got 400,000 followers and you talk to them every single day, 1% of 400,000 people are seeing this that are having the worst day of their life or are mentally unhealthy and stuff's going to come out of their mouth and into your comment section. And you, and, and, it, and you have to kind of ignore those things as best as possible because those people are having an anomaly of a life or an anomaly of a day and it's manifesting in your comment section. And so you kind of have to just um, not care so much uh, because it's really have empathy for those people. I love that. It's kind of a growth mindset of kind of seeing the bigger picture and looking at it from a different perspective. So no, that's powerful. 
All right. So let me ask you this. In addition to being a reality TV star, you're also a successful entrepreneur, an educator, a producer. What kind of pressure do you feel to succeed on a daily basis? Um, you know, there's a I went to a fantastic business school, top ranked. Um, I went to I've, I've read every startup book known to man. Um, I've gone to, I've, I have colleagues that run some of the most important entrepreneurial programs in the world. And I can tell you the, like some really scary news, what is in the business schools, what is in the business books, what is being taught by the business mentors, what is being, um, advocated by the government enabled business incubator esque things is for the radical majority of it is trash and it's harmful and it's old school and it doesn't work anymore. And, um, and so I, it took 15 plus years to develop the curriculum, the mindset, the framework, how we do it and how we help these entrepreneurs with realistic access to capital, realistic access, access to the assets that they need to get their companies off the ground. And so it's like, I feel like I have the keys to the kingdom for all these Mm -hmm. people. And, I'm trying, and that's why we made the blocks, which is like, I feel like I, for, for however many years, like 10 plus years, we've been privately handing the keys off to the, of the kingdom, one entrepreneur at a time. And that was great. That's where we learned, and that's where we got really good at what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I needed to accelerate making sure that the world had access to these tools. And so that's kind of what the show is, is it's a giant curriculum of how you're actually supposed to view starting a company hidden inside of a TV show to trick the modern mind that needs entertainment that doesn't want to sit through an online academy or go to business or or go to business school, even if they were good Mm -hmm. uh, for startups. They're great. Business schools are great for business, but a startup isn't business. A startup is a startup. It's a different science. And so I feel this um, kind of pressure that my television background gives me this storytelling ability and my startup background gives me this unfair kind of mindset of how I wish the world viewed these problems in the early stages. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm one of few people in the world that when we combine this, the show is like the, 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 the gun that at scale can help educate the world and kind of fix the mindset about kind of the old school, write a business plan, go to a bank, um, type of BS that is uh, spewed by every major Barnes and Noble book, every major business school, all the kind of government funded SBTDCs, that kind of stuff. Um, and so I, I really just wish that all of it would change. Mm-hmm. So that way, um, you know, the next person that comes and starts a company, they have access. And I don't even care if it comes from me. I want them to be, when they go seek advice, they get good advice. So do you feel though, like, so your passion, I mean, I can hear the passion from you. Do you feel like that, that, that passion comes with this pressure that you feel like you recognize this, you're on the forefront, you want to be the one to change things. Do you feel a level of pressure that, that comes with that passion? And then if, if you do, what does that pressure do to you on a day-to-day basis? How does that impact you? How do you recognize when you are starting to reach any type of burnout or limitations that you might have as an individual? Um, It is pressure. It's a good pressure though. It's kind of one of those, like, you know, a star athlete feels pressure when the game is on the line, but it's really more of an excitement. Like I've got this, Mm -hmm. Um, 
you are aware of the stakes, but it's like you're excited about it. So I don't want to say that like it's like a pressure and I'm like in a corner fearful. It's more of like I'm at the front excited. I know what's on the line. I know what type of impact I can have. And um, and that excitement does manifest in some in, in my own versions of of mental health challenges and struggles. Um, I have um, some pretty fairly severe insomnia that kind of goes that ebbs and flows when it comes to uh, how I'm able to control it and deal with it. And then I feel like I've got a pretty good handle on what I'm about to tell you now, but there was um, about a four or five year period where I was having, uh, where, I, where I had panic disorder and I was having kind of regularly occurring panic attacks that all came at like weird times. And for years, I thought I had like a heart issue. I was seeing a heart doctor and they couldn't figure it out. And it was at the end of it, it was um, I was taken to a hospital for what I thought was a, I called my wife called thinking it was a heart attack, but really it was just a, the biggest panic attack that I had had yet. And um, I was wearing a heart monitor because that was going through a 30 day like thing um, where again, I'm at a cardio specialist and they're, they are sitting there thinking not one time what is, could you be having panic attacks going through their head? That wasn't one thing um, that was not even remotely discussed. So when the ambulance gets to my house, um, they don't even leave my, my street. They're just sitting there chilling because they know good and well, I'm not having a heart attack. They know exactly what's happening. And I'm like, why is this taking so long? Uh, like, what's the point of calling y'all? Let's go. I could have, I could have had my wife drive me to the hospital faster than this. Yeah. And they, and then they confirmed it. And then we went to the hospital or whatever. And then, then I, the next day I Googled, I basically wrote a, two sentences of what happened and up popped thousands of people that had the same exact thing. And I went into a new doctor, um, mm-hmm. a psychiatrist, and I said, this is what happened to me. What do you think? He's like, you, you had a panic attack. And based on what I'm hearing, you have panic disorder. And then we started we started working through that. Um, and now no idea. No, and that was the first. That was the first time that that even remotely got. I thought I was doing something wrong, and something was wrong with my heart, um, because it would. Ha- I'd have these like, kind of regular heart palpitations that were manageable, but kind of scary because it's your heart. But really, it just had to do with, um, you know, as I was getting excited or nervous or whatever, and all the pressure was weighing for various reasons, and it would just kind of manifest like that. Um, and then the very day that that I had that validation from the real doctor or the doctor that, that correctly diagnosed it, it got 50% better that day because I didn't feel crazy. Um, and then we worked through, I used medication for, it was just basically like nine months. It was meant to trick my body to stop having them. Um, and then they kind of forget to have them. And then I got off the medication and that, that system worked. Um, and, uh, alongside, uh, just other things that I do in my routine and my life to just stay as healthy as possible mentally and physically. But that's, that's kind of my biggest uh, mental health uh, journey right there. And it was, it was, it was opening because um, you know, that uh, the, for years I thought like I was going to, I was on the precipice of like a heart attack or something, but really wow. that wasn't what was happening. No, that's really powerful because there's probably a lot of people out there who, who don't realize what is happening to them and, and that it can be associated with panic attacks or anxiety because it does feel like you're either having breathing issues or a heart attack if you don't recognize what it is that's happening now. Now, did you know that you had specific stressors going on when these attacks were happening or you just 
weren't equating them as being connected whatsoever. I have two of the hardest jobs known to man. Um, Mm -hmm. And I do them both simultaneously. And it's just too much. There's only so much that one can handle. Um, And I'm and and but let's put it this way. It doesn't have to be a job like it could be too much of a bad relationship. It could be too much of a bad environment. It could be too much of whatever. But our bodies can and minds can only handle so much. And when you're when you've gone past that cap, whatever that that metaphorical cap is, Mm -hmm. um, it will manifest in various ways in our bodies and our minds. And mine was panic disorder. Um, but other people's, it could be all, it could be anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just need to be aware when we're putting ourselves in situations that are too much. Now mine is voluntary. I love my two jobs. It's just that they are, I can make arguments for they're two of the hardest jobs in the world. Um, and, uh, there and they just they weigh on me so much um and uh and it and and i, and I guess it makes me sick so then what does self-care look like for you it sounds like you saw a provider you had medication but you said there was other things that you have to do so what does self-care look like for you to try and make sure that you can prevent these from happening again in the future yeah um so the, the insomnia routine helps a lot mm-hmm. um routine takes care of most uh, routine is like the, is, is the most natural thing that helps me in the sense of like going to bed at the same time, waking up at the same time, not take, not ingesting any sort of caffeine past a certain time in the day, um, understanding when it's time to put screens down. Um, and then the one that kind of helps both. And I don't always do this, but when I get in good, um, like, a routine about it at nighttime, I meditate and just use like a guided meditation app. And that 10 minutes or so to close down before the day, it helps a lot because why I'm, I'm not scared of the next day. It's just mm-hmm. that at night when my head hits the pillow, I'm still working in my head and I'm solving problems in my head and I'm getting kind of uh, excited for the next day because I love my two jobs. So whatever it is I have to do the next day, I'm excited to do it. And, um, and then, and then I get, when you're excited, it's hard to fall asleep. Whereas, and so the, the meditation kind of, um, is so boring and it, uh, it, it takes all the excitement of life right out. And, uh, and I'm more than happy to choose the less boring than meditation, which is falling asleep. So my body's like, it's, it's almost like I, the meditation puts my mind to sleep and then I can physically go to sleep. So there was no pun intended when I wanted to ask you this question. So, uh, but I did want to know what keeps you up at night. Now knowing that there's insomnia is some of what keeps you up at night. What are those things though that you are kind of ruminating on and thinking about? And it sounds like you're excited. It sounds like you love your job. So it's not the like, oh man, I, you know, I got to go to work the next day type of thing. But what are those things? What are you trying to build that are essentially keeping you up and, and making you think all the time? Yeah. Um, you know, there's not a single individual task that I do throughout a day. That's rocket science. Um, Mm -hmm. I could teach anybody to do any like several minute thing that I'm doing. If it's four 35, I could teach anyone to do what I'm going to do today at four 35. And then at seven 15, whatever I'm doing, I could teach anyone to do it. What is hard to teach is being able to keep organized the 75 different things that I'm going to have to do throughout that day at a B plus capacity. And how do you remember all those details? How do you keep track of them? 
how do you have the drive and the motivation to do all those things? And then to play, and then some of those things can't be done until other tasks have been done sometimes months prior. And so it's this big puzzle that is that t- that's why building a business takes decades. Um, and the way to accelerate it is to be really good at putting together that puzzle. Um, and so it's those details that, you know, your, your head hits the pillow and you're like, oh, I forgot to do this or, oh, don't forget to do that. Or, oh, shoot, I, the thing at, I need to do at 435, I actually can't do that unless I crush the thing at 1115 or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, that type of stuff is what hits my, is, is what hits my head. And then I'm kind of solving that puzzle while I'm, tr- while I'm supposed to be trying to fall asleep. So how do you keep tabs of all, I mean, it's executive functioning is what, is what I'm hearing. How do you, do you have a system? Do you have an app? Do you have, like, how do you keep tabs of all of those things in a way that then doesn't stress you out because you know you have all those things to do? Yeah, a level of OCD. Um, and I guess I shouldn't say that. I mean, a level of organization that is, that would look OCD or look psychopathic, um, so I'm really clean with my spreadsheets. I'm really clean with my calendar. I'm really clean with my emails. Everything has to be take, like cleaned digitally at all times. Mm-hmm. And then I have um, a, a various types of priorities, but a written down in a, in, a, in a pen and paper, like an art pad that I keep with me at almost all times. That's my like almost to-do list that's separated in, in like day tasks, week-long tasks, and kind of like month-long goals to kind of ruminate on over time and to make sure that I'm driving towards those things. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like a um, ceremonious fun to cross things off the list and kind of work through it all. Uh, And we're talking color coded um, journals, color coded spreadsheets um, and just all sorts of things to keep all of those details um, like, like straight in my head. You should see new employees' faces when I show them our spreadsheets at first. They're just like, they're they're not <laughs> happy with what they've signed up for. And then a month or two later, we speak in this, that we call people by, um, like we have spreadsheet shorthands and we call people by, oh, it's this shorthand, it's this shorthand. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just funny how um, they understand that at our level of scale, um, you know, it t- we would fail without such a sincere level of organization. So all, all those types of things are w- what I use. Now, has that always been you or is this something that was born out of necessity? I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. All right. That's good to know. That's good to know then. What's something you wish people knew more about you or knew about you in general that you don't think anyone knows about you? You know what? Quite a bit. I mean, I'm about as open of a book as there could be. You know, I've been on television for 20 years. Um, I, you know, I'm very active on social. I do things like this all the time. And they, and everyone asks all sorts of great questions, such as you're doing now. So there's nothing that I've put out there that, so that, that isn't public that about my, what I'm doing, what I want to do, where I'm going, mm-hmm. um, all that stuff is out there. And so it's kind of hard to tell what people know and, and, and what, what they, they what they don't, um, because I've been just incredibly transparent about everything at all times. It's the best way to, you know, not get caught in a lie or what should be private or what should be a secret is just by mm-hmm. constantly being an open book and telling the truth at all times. And, um, you know, my open book is 
the television show that I'm on is athletic based mm-hmm. and I'm getting older and they keep bringing on new people and they're all like professional athletes and stuff. So I'm like at the edge of my career there and being, I'm going to be weaned out of that soon, if not already kind of in the process of that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying, I'm in the process of trying to take all of that momentum and shift it over to um, on the business side, which is the point of the blocks to kind of take all of those, all those assets that if my life was a balance sheet, um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a lot of assets and point it towards the business side of things to make sure that I don't lose those assets and that momentum. And then simultaneously, if I can combine those worlds correctly, as we've discussed before, I think we're building a one of a kind, um, tool to allow people to for free with access to the internet, kind of learn what I wish I had known when I was starting a company. And, you know, I kind of like in this, even though this is a a cheesy metaphor, it kind of gets the point across. We're trying to build something that's like the adult version of Bill Nye, the science guy, but for startups where he, he made science fun. And we looked forward to watching and learning from him. And he made it so, um, easy to wrap your heads around because he, shrouded the education and entertainment. And that's what I'm trying to do to entrepreneurship. Now we're not doing it to kids. So we're not like a Bill Nye character. We're doing it to adults. Um, but, uh, that, but adults, these, you know, need entertainment as much as kids do. Mm -hmm. Just different kinds, right? Just different kinds. So, So is it the future of West Bergman then, then taking kind of that transition from the challenge is that hard? Can I ask you too, before I go too far down this question, is that hard? Cause you have dominated in that for so long? Is it, is it challenging now kind of making that recognition that, yeah, I'm getting a little bit older. These young kids are coming in. I mean, you've been a key player for, it seems like since the beginning of the challenges. And so is it hard to make that transition? It's a little hard. Um, not all of the new people are, most of them, by the way, are, are very respectful of the fact that we're kind of aging out, but then a few of them are just like say things where it's like, you know what, buddy, you're going to get old too. And you're going to really, and there's some, you know, um, there's like a lack of respecting your elders. Um, and, uh, uh, and so there's some of that, but for the most part, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a little difficult, but you know, I was warned when I went to go start my very first show, which was so long ago at this Mm -hmm. point, they were like, enjoy it because this is your 15 minutes of fame. And everyone that said that was wrong by, 20 years and with no sign of stopping like whatsoever, um, just transitioning. So they were wrong by potentially a lifetime if I really wanted it to be that. Um, and so when I recognize that this is potentially, um, at least that part of my life is being, is going to at some point very soon be left behind. Um, it's not as hard to, I've been grieving the loss of that side of my life for since before I started. Um, and I never felt entitled to it. And so the fact that it might, I might lose it one day really doesn't scare me all that much. Um, and you know, I've done it. And if I, um, if I stay in the limelight, great, I can handle that for, I don't remember what it was like not to be. And if for whatever reason I move into a far more anonymous life, that sounds kind of refreshing too. Got it. Got it. So I'm going to ask this question. I think I already know the answer to it, though. So if I gave you a redo on that day that you showed up to that casting call for Real World Austin, anything you would do differently or 100% you are happy with the way things have turned out? 
Well, the casting call, no, you don't do anything different. I got on the show. Um, <laughs> like, uh, they pick very few people um, out of a out of a out of a lot, and so I mean, I wouldn't do anything different. But I think to get the spirit of the question here, like, what would I do different in the early days? Yes, and the answer is kind of nothing. Um, and I, I would like to acknowledge I did make you know young young old boy immature mistakes over in those in especially in those first early years. Um, but you know, and as do most boys and, um, and people like in general, it's just what I got is I got to watch game tape on my life and my immaturity. And I got to accelerate becoming a better, becoming a man, because I got to watch myself and say, I don't like that. And I get to edit it. And then, and so, and for the next time, and then also sometimes you're not sure how does that come off? And then you watch it and you're like, I really am proud of myself for the way that that might have been a controversial thing to say or do or whatever, but I'm proud of it and I can stand by it and you can keep that in your life. And so I've been able to kind of have this unfair ability to kind of treat my life and my personality like I'm painting a picture because I get to watch um, I get to watch the art and see what it looks like and see how people and fans interact with it. And I get to say, mm, all right, you guys are right. Let's take a little bit of that out and add a little bit more of this. And that goes that bleeds in a positive way into my friendships and my marriage and my family and all this, because, um, I've got game tape on my life. And so to, if I had done everything perfectly, by the way, I would have never been cast for a second show. Um, making mistakes is a, is a, is a default, like a requisite to continue to be on TV, at least in, at the beginning of the type of television that I was on, but it also allowed me to kind of see what I didn't like and accelerate that maturing process. So do you feel like that that ability to make mistakes is that takes some of the pressure off or do you feel like there's more pressure because now you're trying to go, OK, what do I need to do to make sure that I, I remain you know, relevant or people want to see me? What does that feel like and look like? I had a really interesting ability to um, to ch- change my brand on the challenge side of things kind of midway through. Um Basically, I, I, I was like a bash brother in my first couple, and I would just use just raw, young athleticism and muscle to just crush people's souls. Mm-hmm. And I did that very aggressively, and that's how I was taught to do it in sports. And then they had all these TV people that weren't prepared for it, and so it was like shooting fish in a barrel, and the fans loved it. Mm-hmm. Then I went – I had to finish college, and as soon as I finished college, I launched my company. And then when I eventually had time to go back on the show, um, I couldn't act like that anymore because I was representing a company and was being a steward of other people's monies and reputations. And so I, that's when I transitioned to, um, that's when like the, the genius stuff came about and that's where the, the politics side of things came about. Um, I really leaned into ensuring that my relevancy, like you put it, um, was the foundation was built not on being an aggressive kind of, um, alpha male, but instead for being a, like a cerebral assassin, um, which allowed me to kind of do both of my careers simultaneously. Um, and then it's also, it's safer to do it that way. It's more likable. It's more mature. Um, it's better for the mass audiences. Like it's, it would be easier for me to transition to a channel that's more family oriented. Um, and so it's kind of, it, it fits all the, um, roles. And I was debatably one of the first people to, in my world to kind of do, to, to go after that 
niche. Um, and now a lot of people kind of now that anyone that tries to do it, they all say, Oh, that's, you're just being a little mini Wes or a Walmart <laughs> Wes. And, uh, and I find, I find that to be funny. I think that's nice. You're kind of on the forefront of kind of how to go about doing things. Yep. So what kind of stress do you feel that when you're there, when it is production time, when, when the cameras are rolling and, you know, it, it's a show, it's a competition, there's the athleticism, what kind of stress and pressure do you face when you're in that type of environment? I mean, it's everything that you can, can think of. Um, and there's also nowhere to hide and recharge because, um, like, you know, like even if you were to say, okay, I'm going to go in my room and just chill out for a little bit. Well, my room is a 12 person bunk barracks. Um, and if like, even if a couple of people are there and everyone else is gone, those couple of people were picked from all over the world for their most ridiculous personalities. And so it's not like you're sitting there with two chill people mm-hmm. discussing the future. You're with two ridiculous souls from Texas and London or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's, there's nowhere to hide and nowhere to recharge your batteries, nowhere to just like, just go and you're just on at all times and being filmed and recorded at all times. And you have to do everything perfect because the world is just looking to attack to any level of imperfection, um, that there is. And, uh, and, and then, you know, all while you're just sitting around waiting to get strung up on the side of a building or thrown off a mountain or something. And those aren't metaphors. Those are like some of my monthly job duties. And so what does that do to your mental psyche? Like when, when production wraps, do you need time to decompress before you get back into anything else? Or is it an immediate go? I mean, and, and during that time, how is your, is your mental psyche doing? They give us, um, they give us a psychologist that specialize in post-show mental health and uh, kind of the transition back. And uh, they specialize in that exact situation. And we have access to those people if we need during the filming. And then we have access to them in the subsequent weeks and months after. And and quite frankly, if I called them right now, it's it's been a while since I filmed one. But if I called them right now and I said, I'm struggling um, with some of these issues, they would come in and fix it. The, the, I, I uh, work for basically like the Ferrari of production companies. They invented the genre. So I can't necessarily speak for other production companies, mm-hmm. but it's almost like I'm, and they didn't start this way, but now they're this big corporation that's international and I mean, they're the largest in the world. Basically um, they make keeping up with the Kardashians and they invented the reality television, the project runway and all this stuff and, and all the big names they did. So um, they take, um, mental health very seriously, as well as all sorts of other modern issues. And if you say I'm struggling with something, they find out they, they will help you with it as much as they can. That is really, I I love hearing that now. Has that always been how it's been since back in 2005, or was that something that came about more recently as mental health kind of got more well-known? They've always cared about our health. It's just how they help, how the tools that We've learned, I mean, I've been on TV now for 20 years. So mm-hmm. to, to think that there would be on-call video-based psychologists that specialize in this kind of thing, it's not like they were choosing to not use those people 20 years ago. Exist. They didn't exist. Okay. Um, so they would use psychologists that mm-hmm. you would meet with or whatever. And now there's like specialists and all this stuff. So I've, again, I'm in the Ferrari of, and so they have always cared about our health and safety. And there's, there's a reason why 
I continually let them string me upside a building or throw me off a mountain. I, I trust them. So they, they, they almost have to be good at keeping us safe. Otherwise we wouldn't trust them to let, I mean, I, I don't, I have to jump out of a helicopter like twice a year, like, um, and not, not, and not in like a safe way. Like I have to like do a stunt while doing it or, or two times ago I was in a helicopter. Mm -hmm. I was strung up and like hanging outside of the helicopter, memorizing a puzzle piece that was on the lake. And it was just like circling around and I had to memorize this puzzle piece. And when I was done, I have to rip myself out and fall into the lake and then recreate the puzzle piece. And so, um, you know, when we talk about there, it being just too much, like yeah. too much that you have nowhere to hide in the game. Is it too much to be, to have a, uh, be strung up on the side of the helicopter? Is it too much to be voting out your friends and kind of the survival all while basically being on vacation from a, a, a job where I'm responsible for hundreds of people's safety and education on a monthly basis. Um, and so the, it's just, what if this is too much, I'm, I'm taking on too much. And so. Um, again, I, it manifests in symptoms. Which it sounds like at least though you recognize that now and you have those procedures and processes in place, which is good. All right. Well, yeah. I have uh, two last questions for you. The second to last question being, um, what haven't I asked you that you think is important for people to know just about any, and it can be about anything. It can be about you. It can be about, you know, being in the limelight. It can be about stress, but anything that you think people should be aware of. Um, you know, I, um, the limelight stuff, I think it's, it's easy to make it look like fame and money is an overnight thing. And it says not an overnight thing with in the world of television as it is in startups. Um, you chip away at fame, money, and power on a daily basis for your entire life. And then eventually you get to the top of some proverbial mountain and people look at it and they think that there was a cheat code or an easy way there. And you look at some of these people that make it look easy, even if let's, let's say, let's go to the lowest common denominator here. Like those these young, beautiful women on Instagram, all they do is they take selfies and they get a million followers and then they get endorsed by whoever and they apparently make lots of money. First off, it's probably not all that much money. Second off, those aren't selfies. Those are highly curated professional photography made to look like they don't care. Um, all while they're working their tails off to keep the bodies that are like that and then using editing software to make unrealistic expectations for other people that are watching. It's a full-time job to make it yeah. look like they don't care. And, um, I've got girlfriends that are on OnlyFans, and they make six, $700,000 a year. And it is not that, and they were TV stars first. So that's not, that's why they can make that much. The, yeah. the I don't, they're not it's people that have no notoriety and then started to make that type of money. Otherwise everyone would be on OnlyFans. <laughs> yeah. These women are working. 10 hours a day on photo shoots and videos and captions and returning DMS and all this stuff. They are some of the hardest working women that I've ever met. And it's like, yeah, they're getting paid. Um, but it's just what I'm, what I'm getting at is when you look at somebody that's making it look easy, regardless of the profession, and I've made it look of the lowest common denominator. I'd like to think I make being a CEO look easy because I want it to look easy because I want my employees and my customers to have trusted me, yeah. but it's not easy. I'm working my tail off every single second of it. And 
you know, when I post vacation pictures or when I post a new car or when I buy a new house or whatever, I get comments that are like that. It must be nice. And it's like, oh, no, you didn't. It's not a must be nice thing because there was no luck or overnight thing about it. I worked my tail off in a very functional capacity for 15 years to get to this. And so I'd say that's the that's the one I would love for people to kind of recognize is that no one has got it easy. And anyone that looks like they're at the top of their game and they've got it easy, they don't. They're making it look easy for a lot of really a lot of really hard work. And you can say that about like athletes. They have this. So, you know, Tyreek Hill, fastest guy in the NFL. Well, why is he the fastest guy in the, in, in the NFL? And, and, and then you go and you look at some of the back-end training that that guy does. Um, and it's like he's working his literal tail off to become and maintain his status as the fastest guy in the NFL. So that way when we watch him and you're like, oh, my God, that was a star play. He made it look so easy. Well, it was that, that 20 seconds might have been easy for him. But – not the last 20 months that he put in to ensuring that he was able to do that. And, uh, and so throw that out there. No, I, I think that's a very valid point and, and something that people need to hear as well too. All right. Last question. This is my question that I ask all of my guests who come on the podcast. If you could give any advice to youth, young adults who are struggling social, emotionally, academically, what advice would you give? Um, so I would say we all struggle and anyone who says that they don't is lying, which means that they might even be struggling worse. And so knowing that you're not crazy is the fir- is one of the first ones. Um, we all are struggling and we're just at, we're just at different points in our lives and our careers, especially the young people that are listening. Um, I didn't have an iota of what I've got now when I was 21, 22, 25, 26. Um, and the company that really made it for me, I didn't start until I was 27 and didn't start working truly until like eight or nine years later. And so um, I would say a lot of this stuff takes time. Now, the second like thing to layer on to all that, you will, I mean, I, mental health, as I've discussed here, is like is a sickness and we can do things to make ourselves better by seeking help and um, and figure and, and doing things that adding routines to our life and all that kind of stuff that is like the second layer of that pyramid. So one, you're not crazy. It's okay. We all struggle. Two, there are things that we can do to from a health standpoint to make ourselves just a little bit less likely to suffer from that. But then the third one is, Quite frankly, and this one might be on, on the controversial side, if we start working towards our goals and breaking those bigger goals up into smaller pieces and start working towards those, you're going to feel a little bit better about things. Um, if you're depressed because you're overweight, we can work towards being healthier and working out. If you're depressed about your career, we can we can invest in your education. We can go, get to work a little bit earlier. We can maybe find another job. We need to, it's like, we need to be proactive about understanding what things we can change and what things we can better. And, um, and, and it, success doesn't necessarily make you happy. Money doesn't make you happy, but those things definitely do make some things easier. Um, and it makes it easier to not be as hard on yourself. And it also gives you something to do while we're just trying to live our lives. And so, Um, I would say, you know, we're not crazy. We all struggle. We need to have good routines. We need to invest in our mental health and and our clarity and having good, a a good headspace. But then I also think it's like the last little cherry on top. If this was a a pyramid is um, we can, we can recognize places in our, 
personal and professional lives where we can become better and we can just start making small, 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 small improvements on, on those things on a daily or weekly basis um, that uh, that over time you're going to look back and you're going to be very proud of those things and it will make it, it, it some of the problems that we've discussed will kind of be assuaged a bit. hundred percent. That's great advice. Well, Wes, I can't thank you enough for your time, for your energy, for coming on the Neurodiverse Teacher Podcast. I truly, truly appreciate having you. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Well, and thank you to all my listeners for tuning in and checking me out. And I will see you next week on the Neurodiverse Teacher Podcast. The Neurodiverse Teacher Podcast is an Eccleston Education Consulting LLC production.